the future of markets and securities is tokenization. Big, big players can now get involved. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me today, I've got Akish and I've got Amber. There are two co-hosts to this week's show. Welcome back, Amber. Bit of an absence from the podcast. I know. It's you two. I need to take some time away from you both. Someone someone might think that you've actually got work to do instead of... <laughs> well, yeah, there is that as well, actually. <laughs> This is a question for you both. Uh, it's obviously a Monday at the time of recording. Did either of you have a takeaway over the weekend? No. I didn't. Uh, no. Oh, well, that's that's, that's <laughs> what helps. Uh, when did, <laughs> I, mean, I, when I went? Last... I went. I went out to eat. Does that count? What did you have? Nando's. Last takeaway. Last takeaway. Mine was an Indian. Oh, I had a pizza. You know. Can't go wrong with a pizza. No. You know what you're getting. You know what you're ordering. It's easy to eat. Not much cutlery needed. Boom, done. Not much cutlery. <laughs> Is that what you judge your yeah, minimal on? Washing yeah, minimal washing up and putting away. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just beautiful. Uh, but the big oh, question dear. is, do you go Pizza Hut or Domino's? I'm a Domino's kind of guy. <sighs> right. I don't like Papa John's. If you listen to this, no, your I didn't garlic even put Papa sauce John's. is horrendous. No, I didn't even put Papa John's it's in the mix garlic there. Sauce. Yeah, no, I'm a Domino's. To be perfectly girl. honest, I, I'm Papa John's over Pizza Hut and Domino's. Really? Really? What, even oh, their yeah. garlic dip? It's horrendous. Yeah, but the pizza's actually half decent. Oh, the other two. I don't, dip, well, I don't mind Domino's. Which is kind of the prop point of a pizza. Oh. I just think, some. Uh, yeah, I think Domino's is a bit too greasy. Like, I know it's a pizza and it's going to be greasy, but Domino's is just... Well, it- yeah, but you're, you're after like your artisan flatbread with, you know, no, no, I like a bit... all that No, sort of... no, I, that, I don't like a fancy pizza, but I don't like a Domino's pizza that much, to be honest. Mine is Pizza Hut. Fair Ooh. enough. Look, the reason why I'm asking you this is we've got two interviews today. The first, we're going to be talking about Web3 and Aventus with Alan Vey. But the second, Mate Kun is the CEO and co-founder of Growth Kitchen. So later on in the show, we're going to be talking about how they are helping restaurants prioritise their delivery network. A couple of interesting things to uh, to bear in mind. The weekend is not dead and fried chicken is still alive. So that's later on in the show. But we're going to hand over to the first interview with Aventus and then we'll be back with some comments. On today's show, I'm joined by the chairman and founder of Aventus Network, Alan Vey. How are you today? I'm all good, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on here. You're sat in a t-shirt in warmer climates. You're <laughs> you're in Dubai at the moment, which I'm incredibly jealous of because I think it's about two degrees here in the UK. Yeah, no, it's been it's quite fortunate because obviously when you guys have summer over there, it's like 45, 50 degrees out. Yeah, so it's just come from that immense heat where you kind of stay indoors the same way you would in the UK in winter, um, but just getting really nice now, sort of 20 to 30 degrees every day. It's yeah, got a bit of time in the mornings given the uh, the time zones where I can spend some time in the in the ocean. Very very fortunate. Absolutely, and look, you have just moved from 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 London, uh, CEO and founder of Aventus before becoming chairman and founder um and and a business that was launched here a couple of years ago so um before we get into anything else and maybe asking why you've moved um location and if that's a a business reason or or just you know as a founder you're looking for a change of scene who are aventus what are the company actually involved in yeah so in terms of the the why the move right we still have the majority of our, I mean, our businesses are set up in the UK. We do the majority of our trading activity out of the UK. Um, it's just myself. I moved out here. My family has been here for 10 years. Um, 
I'm from South Africa originally, so the weather, the outdoorsy lifestyle uh, is more what I'm used to. So those were kind of key driving factors. And then, of course, with COVID, we never went back into the office as Aventus. We kind of got rid of our offices, we majority sort of uh, developers as well as a business, right? So quite a decentralized workforce in terms of most people work at, from home or have now moved out of London. Um, so there was no real need for me to be physically present in the UK and thought, uh, why not to change? Um, but yeah, as, as Aventus itself, we've been set up in the UK. I mean, I, I started the original vision of Aventus in um, 2015. Uh, I, was, I was doing my master's in artificial intelligence at Imperial College over in, in South Kent. Um, and that's the year we sort of founded the initial Aventus focused on the event ticketing industry. But it's been uh, quite an evolution to, to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you don't mind me staying on the uh, on on the entrepreneur track for just a moment before we get onto the subject yeah. matter, decentralized workforce, absolutely get get it. And and there you said kind of a, a largely development team. But as as a founder, is it slightly unnerving being quite a large distance from your team, or is it something that feels quite natural? So it took some adjusting, right? The COVID forced us all to to get used to this. There was never really we we had offices. Everybody came in every day. Mm. Um, and, and when it first happened, there were the two camps of people who thought, oh, people don't have somebody looking over their shoulder at home. They're not going to be as productive. And then there was the other camp saying, no, people can kind of rearrange their schedules more um, efficiently and they'll be more productive. Um, and I guess for different businesses, it, it, it worked differently. We found net um, people were happier. They were spending less time commuting in rush hour. Some of our, our, our engineers would sort of commute an hour and a half one way um, to the office and back. So that was really positive. Um, people felt better, but yeah, being away from the team is, it's, it's, it's different, right? So with COVID, we got used to it and we built the processes and now we try and figure out, okay, for what reasons and how do we get together? So we'll try and do sort of quarterly meetups. You know, you have less of that having a random conversation with somebody in the business over a beer on a Friday when you've, you've finished up the work week and getting some idea because you, you've been fed information you otherwise wouldn't have, right? So trying to emulate that element of things, getting people together for uh, whatever meetups, both in a more formal office setting where we can work together, but also more informally where we can have some drinks, have some dinner or whatever. Um, so so it's a, it's, it remains something that we're working on. I don't think we've perfected it yet. Fair enough. Well, look, it'd be very interesting maybe to check in with you six months uh, down the line and see how the how the the dynamic is evolved. Um, anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, Aventus. If you go on Aventus on LinkedIn, it talks about an enterprise grade blockchain that makes it easy for business to build, um, and then it talks on kind of various different uh, platforms, languages. Um, I know what enterprise is, I know what blockchain is, but I'm a little bit curious to know what enterprise grade blockchain is. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess enterprise grade is just a technical classification of the product, right? What we, what we really do is focus on the enterprise market. Um, what we've seen is we started this journey, as I mentioned, in 2015. And the first enterprises we dealt with were ticketing enterprises in LA, primarily like Live Nation, who we ended up ultimately doing a deal with and various others. Um, and back then, people weren't, didn't understand the tech many had never even heard of Bitcoin, right? So that evolution in market to where we are today, where most CIOs or boards have Web3 as an agenda item. So what are you doing in Web3, whether it's NFTs, Metaverse, or whatever other sub-segment it is, 
um, has really expanded massively. And we're really at that point now. I think you could kind of draw parallels to the rollout of the internet where we saw that explosion, that sort of hyper growth in the early 2000s. And I would argue that, that that's currently where we are in the blockchain market, or should we say just before in the, in the kind of bubble burst phase, before we get into that. Um, enterprises know this is coming. They know this fundamental value there. They have no clue how to actually apply it to their business. And that's what we're trying to help with. And you mentioned there about the, the bubble bursting. <laughs> Obviously, there's been a lot in the news around crypto winter and, you know, FTX, FTX, uh, .us, filing for bankruptcy back in November. That's quite different, isn't it, from from blockchain? I mean, is, is that not the reason that we have this separation now of Web3 and crypto, that actually there's a parallel, two parallel markets, one that is very much more driven towards finance and currencies and tokenization, and one which is about um, verifying uh, documentation, perhaps, or, or, or those kind of user cases? Yeah, yeah, I think Web3 is a nice umbrella for all of it, right? Because it, it marks a sort of major step change in the internet. Um, and then the subclassifications, you've got your sort of tokenization, your crypto tokens, your NFTs, all of that. You've got then the technology itself, should we call it blockchain or, or, or this, the kind of network side of it, where you're kind of utilizing the fundamental properties of these systems where one use case is tokens for other things, like you mentioned, uh, supply chain tracking, um, all kinds of stuff, contracts and whatnot. And then I'd say there's probably a third major camp that you could see under that, which is the metaverse side of things. And of course, there's kind of overlap between each of these, right? And some of them are contained mm -hmm. within the others. But there's three major class categories, tokenization, blockchain, and Web3. I think that's a nice way of kind of splitting up major areas within Web3. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, there is overlap, and it's interesting that you point that out. I, I, this is this is kind of learning for everyone at the time. I, I went to Web Summit a few about what, where are we now? It's going to be about a, a, a month or so ago by the time this comes out. And there, it was like, okay, hang on, Web three is really kind of zeitgeisty. What is Web three? Web three is everything that blockchain, but not crypto. But what you're suggesting there is that that's perhaps an imperfect definition. Yeah, I, I think the definition of Let's look at Web 1, Web 2, and then Web 3, right? Web 1 was basically the read-only internet. It was kind of pulling information from servers. Web 2 was the, the read-write internet, where you were kind of posting user-generated content back and then the whole rise of social media from that. And then Web 3 is read-write-own. You have the ability to actually represent digital ownership, not a, a digital representation of physical ownership, but genuine digital ownership as a sort of source of truth in its own right. That's what Web3 is to me. So when you think of it just as digital ownership, then of course, all of these kind of areas fall underneath that, right? Whether it's tokens, whether it's yep. blockchain, whatever it is, we're talking about digitally represented scarcity. Got it. Perfect. That's that's a nice bit of clarity, perhaps, for anyone that's listening, as well as me. Um, look, you were quite keen to talk about the fact that there are some opportunities. There is silver lining to this current crypto winter, as it's beginning to be called. Um, what's going on, and why do you think there are some silver linings there? Yeah, so, I mean, 
let's try and separate out the global economy, right? Risk assets like crypto would have always fallen given the sort of macroeconomic environment. But putting that aside, there have been some sort of major developments within the crypto space, right? I think the most people see that the Terra Luna collapse as the first sort of catalyst in the, the significant devaluation of the crypto market. Um, then obviously FTX more recently really showed that it's not just the more decentralized type protocols like what Terra Luna was uh, viewed as, which wasn't really decentralized, but was kind of advertised as such, but also even established players like an exchange, one of the second biggest exchange, the second biggest exchange in the world that uh, wasn't really up to the highest standards of what we would kind of expect when you give somebody custody of your assets, right? So I think FTX is probably well, hopefully one of the last major cases that goes down, obviously anything tied directly to FTX, either the assets within FTX or kind of dependent, like BlockFi was dependent on a credit line from FTX will be affected. But the implications, I don't think will be as far reaching. When Terra Luna happened, obviously we saw 50, 60, 70% decline in the value of the crypto market as a whole. With FTX collapsing, Bitcoin and ETH have stayed relatively similar to their current values, right? Now, Obviously, there's a lot of issues for anybody who is directly involved in that, and a lot of people are getting hurt in this market. But it is forcing regulators to really move. So if you look in the UK, right, we saw announcements this week that uh, we're expecting to get proper uh, crypto regulation, much wider reaching regulation um, is, is very imminent. All of this, I believe, has just kind of been fueled on by, by what happened with FTX. And the, the positives here are... In a market where before anybody could create these tokens, have tokens, easy access to capital, selling to an unregulated market, meaning selling to anybody without discriminating, being able to present an image that with an incredibly complex technology was hard to understand. A lot of people were just kind of throwing money in and they didn't know where to throw it because everything seemed to be appreciating. And that will not happen again. I don't think regulators will let that happen again. So the future markets will be protected. This means people can start trusting the technology more. Let's go back to that internet analogy, right? When consumer protections came in for credit card spending online where 30-day payment back guarantees, all of those kind of things, we saw an explosion in e-commerce on the internet. And I think that's similar to what we might see now in the crypto space. Because we have these protections that are coming in place, people can actually start to trust it. And enterprises who are big trusted entities can actually properly get involved. You see somebody like Larry Fink, right, the CEO of, um, uh, of, of BlackRock, saying uh, last week that the future of markets um, and securities is tokenization. So big, big players can now get involved. Is this market reaction and this move towards regulation perhaps because some of those players have already entered the market and now there's a bit more skin in the game and they they they, they want the market obviously to have that trust to have consumer confidence and actually this this is that you know the next step on what has been a long road towards a, a mature marketplace. So I mean there were rumours when. Terra Luna originally happened, right? Which major player just did a massive Bitcoin arbitrage by borrowing Bitcoin, exploiting the vulnerability in Terra and selling it back and, and kind of capitalizing or, or benefiting on that delta? Was it some of the big financial institutions who were originally naysayers then missed the boat and then 
kind of uh, got involved in this kind of a manner. A skeptic, I mean, if there's, a, if there's an economic incentive, somebody will always abuse that economic incentive, right? If the, the morals aren't there or whatever it is. So this not surprising for an unregulated market. Who it was? Was it the traditional players? Very difficult to say. I think it's probably unlikely any of the sort of major respected regulated players. Some Maybe some of those who play more on the fringes might have been involved. It's, you know, at the end of the day, how do you know what news to believe in this world of fake news? And look, you, you mentioned before we hit record that you were keen to talk about adoption of this technology beyond currencies. That that intrigued me because because if we're talking about Web three, I get the adoption of blockchain, but were you referring to the adoption of tokenization beyond currencies? Just I just want to kind of see what 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 you meant by that because I think this is this is quite interesting about how it might be kind of adopted in 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 the coming years. Yeah, so I would say across both of those camps, right? There's blockchain applications where you're just really utilizing the the properties of the sort of immutable nature of this tech where once transactions have happened, they can never change. Nobody can edit them. Um, and the, the, the scarcity that that kind of creates around these systems. But then also within tokenization, the field of NFTs, right? And NFTs mm-hmm. not just um, as representing digital collectibles or artworks, but this can represent medical data. For example, we've seen different projects. You can govern access rights to data or synthetic data, right? Data that is created as a statistical representation of a real data set, but not actually that data set and how you can um, kind of involve NFTs in the ownership or the licensing um, or retrieving insights from, from data. So there's all kinds of interesting ways you can take, especially within the NFT realm, you can take that, that uh, kind of tokenization concept further without it being a, a currency or crypto, if you might. That's a trick because because I'll be perfectly honest. When someone comes up to me and they start talking about NF, NFT art, rightly or wrongly, I kind of switch off. Um, it's just not something that I find particularly interesting. However, when you start talking about medical data, that's something that obviously, you know, that there's certain regulation around how medical data can be shared, how patient data can be shared. It, it, does this make it more secure? So that. Any regulation where it's sort of appropriate regulation, what, what's the goal of regulation, right? It's to protect the end consumer, the end um, person sort of grabbing that asset, being involved in that asset cycle. Um, so, yes, the regulation should make it more secure. But at times, there's two ways regulation can be done. It can be a more of a soft approach, let the market make its mistakes and then figure out how to try and sort of prevent those. Or it can be more... Um, blanket kind of regulation. For example, we've seen China ban cryptocurrencies seven, eight, nine times and unban them, right? And that typically stifles innovation. So in the medical data space, I would argue that we need to revisit the regulations around the data because they were based on the former system and the former abilities that we had with tech, and they didn't take into account the kind of abilities that we have now with these sort of uh, blockchain-based platforms. And there could be great benefits both to the end user and the, the hospitals. For example, uh, a friend of mine's mother was in the States um, and, and she had had a stroke. She went to a different hospital because she had a fall a week later and it took him four days to get the records from the one hospital to the other hospital, which were both in the same city a few miles apart, right? 
that kind of data sharing is, is very easy for us to do with the tech we have today, but very difficult to do with the existing regulations that are in place. So yes, it makes it more secure, but they also need to be flexible enough to adapt to new technology to allow innovation. Now, one kind of future-gazing piece, and I appreciate this is very subjective, but in, in the last day or two, there's been some rumor about um, Elon Musk um, and and how he might be thinking about cryptocurrencies. He came out and said that WeChat has a lot of functionality that Twitter should have. It's kind of a no-brainer for Twitter to have payments, both fiat currency and crypto, to make it easy, or sorry, to make that easy and simple for people to use. And there are rumours that Twitter is working on his own currency. There's been a lot of chat about how Musk uses Twitter and a lot of concern, obviously. How much credence do you store in, in some of those comments? And, and what do you think about this idea of of, of Twitter perhaps being a platform for, for fiat and non-fiat currencies? Yeah, so Elon Musk's perspective on crypto has obviously been interesting to follow from the beginning. Um, from him backing a coin like Doge, or a meme coin, right? Um, and just playing with the kind of market sentiment. I think I saw an article where the Bitcoin that Tesla bought and subsequently sold made more money than any of the Teslas they'd ever sold up to that date, just on the, the kind of volatility of that token. Um, and then he got more and more active, obviously, more recently with Twitter. I know there's been a lot of uh, news reports talking about potentially making Twitter a super app like like WeChat. You're kind of referencing it there, right? Where you have payments, you have even as far as food delivery. It's like an Amazon Plus uh, dating app plus everything, right? So I wouldn't be surprised to see with the radical changes that are happening at Twitter. Um, also, the, the kind of freedom of speech points, right? Where Elon has kind of unmasked a bunch of stuff recently. Um, around how certain political cases have been handled and whatnot. So, yes, I think there probably will be some kind of crypto that comes. There were rumors that Doge would be that, but it seems more and more like um, Twitter is going to be doing its own kind of coin. But then there's also the relationship with Binance, who put $500 million into the deal to help acquire Twitter, right? So to what degree is Binance going to have an involvement in that too? Uh, potentially there's something interesting to watch there. So... I think this is going to be a very interesting example of breaking out of the mold of the other big social media companies, because that's kind of Elon's uh, MO, right? He kind of just does whatever he wants to a degree, but normally around some kind of very interesting vision. Um, and whether that succeeds or not remains to be seen, but we'll definitely see some experimentation at the kind of top of the corporate ladder um, that will hopefully, if nothing else, set the precedence and help kind of flesh out the legal landscape that we all need. Look, the the overarching kind of narrative of this chat over the last 20 minutes or so is that, yes, there may be bumps in the road, but we are moving to a more mature space. Web3 is definitely something that is here to stay. So I suppose the last question to leave um, you with is, if you are in the market of helping businesses realize the value of blockchain at what point do you think a business should be looking at this going hang on a minute web 3s for us or there's something here that that makes sense for us to start thinking about ownership of, of digital um products or, or looking at this market more seriously so i think almost every enterprise can benefit from this technology in some form or another 
around operational efficiency, right? Um, processes that they deal with other businesses with that could be streamlined, made more efficient, costs could be cut. Um, there's a great operational efficiency piece. And this is obviously not the kind of sexy uses of crypto that you see like the flashy coins and the big market caps and all the volatility. But there is fundamentally something we can do with technology now that we never previously were able to do. And it's about figuring out how you get the right touch points to be able to bring that about in a cost-effective manner for enterprises. So I know it's on most people's agenda, but it really requires, because of the complexity of the technology, because of the sentiment in the market and the degrees of scams in the past, it takes time. We've seen loads of proof of concepts done in so many different sectors and the conversion rates to real deals being incredibly low. And that's a symptom of people not identifying the right use cases. So I think that's important to take the time to properly identify the use case and how it's going to work um, and then go for it. But within most enterprises, there is some area of the business, if not significant parts, that will be affected by this technology over the next 10 years. Look, Alan, it's, it's been a really interesting chat. I really appreciate you spending a bit of time. Um, I say kind of given that it's the 7th of December when we're recording, enjoy Advent, but I don't know what Advent's like in the Middle East. It's probably very different to what it is right now in the UK, cold and dark. So uh, well done for escaping the cold and dark. Uh, but um, thank you for your time and, and have a have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Lovely. Thanks, man. Yeah, it'll be my first one figuring out what it's like here in Dubai. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. But thanks for having me here. I, I wish you uh, all the best for the holiday season too. Right. I have to admit, NFTs, I said it halfway through the interview, whenever anyone says NFTs to me at the minute, I kind of switch off. And this was the first time when I was like, okay, this this is this is making a bit more sense. This is interesting because the whole like John Terry trying to kind of like sell NFT monkeys and stuff last year, really, I did not get on board with. Hmm. Um, do, do you remember that the, the 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 monkey yacht club thing? I do, yeah. But but I think that was like a it was a trend, wasn't it? Because I I had a couple of people that I know that um, are, you know, crypto people um invest in crypto and and they kind of went on this five six month splurge on nfts and you know the monkey family or whatever they were called and apparently this was currently at fifteen hundred dollars but in three years time this token thing is going to be eight thousand dollars or something and i was like what like i just didn't get it to be honest so i'm the same as you a lot of this goes over my head i'll be completely honest um yeah sorry that's what, this I'm is what we're looking for Ex experts insights on yeah. talks podcast oh. yes. but look i mean look, I, I don't think that's i don't think that's i don't think there's any shame in admitting that with with this because a lot of people when it comes to nfts and blockchain are a little nonplus i think most people have got their head around cryptocurrency right mm -hmm. and i think when you hear about someone like larry fink at blackrock saying the future of markets is tokenization you kind of go all right, I can understand why, especially when when you know there's those bits like more and more moving into the space that WeChat have have kind of really kind of brought digital commerce together with social with an idea like Amazon. It kind of makes sense in those in those realms, but when it comes to NFTs and whatever else, that's still something that most people kind of go, yeah, I don't get it. I mean, we we might be sat back listening to this in five years and. You know that's the new thing, and well, not the new yeah. thing, but that's the 
the most common thing now. But the bit the bit about this that then makes it make sense is that that story that he tells about a friend of mine's mother who had a stroke in the USA, four days to get records from one hospital to another. I think it depends, like you say, that example, um, it does make sense and you can see sort of the value in it. But I think sometimes um, if it's just for the sake of having it almost, then I don't really get it. Like when people are paying like thousands of pounds and it's just for like, I don't know, like just for a digital piece of art. That that to me just, I don't really understand that at all. Um, but I think we had somebody on the podcast before, I'm not sure if you remember, it was like um, somebody was doing like NFTs within sport. It was basically saying that, you know, if you're not fortunate to be able to sort of to go and watch sports games, you can sort of like have NFTs and, and, and people sort of look at it in the sort of the same sort of way. Um, I'm sure he said it a lot better than that. But the point is, like, for some examples, like you say, in this one with the stroke, you can see where it has value and you can see why people are invested in it and they want to sort of, like, get involved with it. Um, so I think it just it's on almost like a case-by-case basis. I did, by the way, find the stat that um, Elon Musk had made more money on a Bitcoin that Tesla had bought and sold than on all the rest of the Tesla Teslas that they'd sold up to that point. I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. That's carnage, right? The point that um, that Alan makes is that you, you kind of need someone who's a bit of a maverick who's probably going to do something that no one else would or, or do something that, that he just wants to do to flesh out the legal groundwork. That for a lot of this stuff, the regulation isn't there yet. And that if you have someone doing stuff like Elon Musk, like him or loathe him, he's going to bust through a few... Uh, doors and make it easier for the people who come after him. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you know there's money in it, then obviously you're just going to sort of run with it, aren't you? Like like you say, with this one where he's obviously, he's making way more than all the testers they've like ever sold, then obviously he's going to keep doing it, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? Like people obviously are going to get more and more invested and that's why there was a whole sort of wave of like crypto, I guess, because people could see others making money off the back of it. And they were like, right, OK, well, I want to get involved and I want a piece of that as well. Anyway, we will move into a subject that we can all talk about with a little more freedom, and that's food. So we'll take a quick break and afterwards we'll be chatting very quickly about Growth Kitchen and Mate. Here at Tech Talks, we're very lucky to have a lot of content and sometimes we're not entirely sure what to do with it. For example, when we go to a conference, we will quite regularly meet 15 or 20 people and not know how to get them all on the show. So we've created something new, Tech Talks Extra, for those snippets from conference floors or from one-off events that we don't quite know how to fit into your regular Tuesday show. Tech Talks Extra is free. It's on a private RSS, so you do need to sign up for it and subscribe. But as I say, it's free and all you need to do is hand over your email address and in return, we'll give you instructions of how to access all of that additional content. To get instructions and to sign up to the show so you can play it on Apple and Google podcast players, all you need to do is go to www.nashsquared.com forward slash the hyphen hub forward slash tech hyphen talks hyphen extra hyphen sign up hyphen form. Alternatively, have a look at the link in the show notes. Probably a bit of an easier way to do it. Don't miss out on all the bonus content that we've got from the likes of Web Summit, Unleash World, or from any internal events that we're running. Right, so Growth Kitchen, um, they're not a competitor to Uber Eats or to Deliveroo. They're giving the data to restaurants to better understand how to scale. So it's all about the best locations for the best food brands and grow from a few kitchens to hundreds um, of strategic locations. So basically, 
improving improving delivery to our homes, which I can tell you now, guys, having moved to rural Kent, um, delivery here ain't great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine not when you're used to sort of like London speeds, Dave. No, when we moved here, um, my wife opened Deliveroo and was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> There's nothing here. Deliveroo does not exist. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's really interesting because uh, Mate himself is a, is a celiac and he's interested in helping kind of uh, improve the choice of, of foods and, and better understand the analytics and the data of what people are, are choosing. This isn't just kind of like another um, go eat or whatever else. Um, so, yeah, before we play the interview... One final question for you, and then we'll hand over to, to, to Mate. Uh, what day is the most popular day for takeaways of the year? Wait, do you mean weekday, as in like Friday, Saturday, Sunday or something? Or do you no, mean... just the, the singular day. Oh, right, okay. Valentine's uh, Day. Christmas Day. Christmas Day. <laughs> what are you on about? If you're right, <laughs> well, New there. Year's Day. New Year's New Day. Year's day. Uh, I don't know what I meant. Maybe I know in Boxing Day. I don't know, something around no. Christmas where people can't be bothered to cook. Who's got a takeaway open on Boxing Day? I don't know, Dave. <laughs> I've, lost, I've lost my head at this point. Um, You'll I don't have know, to the answer. That, that sort of weird period in between Christmas and... Okay, I'm sticking with Christmas. Is it around Christmas? Please put me out of my misery. <laughs> Listen to the interview. Okay. So I'm talking to Mate from Growth Kitchen. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Um, we... Saw each other briefly at Web Summit back in November in Lisbon, so it's lovely to catch up with you at this early point in the new year. Before we do anything else, though, because I'm going to make the assumption that people haven't listened to Tech Talks Extra and some of those interviews that we put out there, who are Growth Kitchen and what do you do for them? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, one of the founders of Growth Kitchen, and what we're trying to do is create a much more convenient and sustainable alternative to, to grocery shopping and cooking. And the way we do that is by... Um, helping some of the best delivery brands um, that do a lot of food delivery on Deliveroo and Uber Eats and all the other platforms uh, scale and get a lot, lot better at utilizing data to optimize their operations um, and pass some of those savings on to the end consumers. So when we're talking about some of those brands, what, what brands can we talk about there? Um, we're working very, very closely with brands like Tortilla, The Athenian, Patty and Bon, Popeyes, um, you know the the household names that that you probably are familiar with on uh, from Deliveroo and Uber Eats. And what's your background? How did you get into this? You know, are you are you a chef who who saw a problem with tech that technology could could fix, or are you coming up from from a completely different sector? Um, a very different sector. I've been into food since I was a kid because I'm I'm celiac, so I've been checking food labels since I know how to read. And then when I did my undergrad in, in the States at the University of Georgia, I worked in, uh, uh, in the student food hall there, flipping a couple of burgers and making some American pancakes, which was good fun. Um, but that's about it. But I, I guess like I've been really into building companies since oh, essentially high school and starting my first venture backed company, uh, during my undergrad, um, then helped other people build their technology companies like VideoBit Networks or, or Sensus, which is a computer vision business. And I guess with Growth Kitchen, my passion for, for tech and food kind of just came together and it all just clicked of how do we bring this like data and analytics into, into, food, into the food space, which just inherently is, is, is physical. 
So, so you kind of touch on on what the problem is there, but what what is this specifically the problem that, that that Growth Kitchen are trying to fix? Because, as you said, there are obviously a number of different kind of technology food tech providers that there in the market. Mm. So I, I think you know, like when let's say ten years ago, we we would we would call up a pizza place and be like, "Hey guys, uh, I'd like to have some some pizzas at my door delivered to me." Then then Deliveroo just did Uber Eats came into the market and kind of like tried to aggregate those restaurants, uh, but they didn't really get involved in the operations of those restaurants. So just sign up like whatever restaurant was available in in whatever postcode and neighborhood, and they just put them on the platform. So these restaurants. Essentially, the way I say it is like they happen to do some delivery, but they're not necessarily built for delivery. Um, so what we're trying to do is take them to the next level, bring them the knowledge and the data analytics they require to make their operations a lot more optimized for food delivery. So their food can be prepared on time, accurately and delivered faster to the end consumers. But then we're not just leaving it there. We're saying, look, Tortilla and the Athenian, Patty and Bun, they're amazing brands. They should, they should be nationwide. Maybe they should become international. So we partner with people who own or operate kitchens across the country and we place these, these brands, um, in, into those, those, those kitchens, essentially, um, providing them with, with the ability to expand into new postcodes that they didn't cover before. I would assume that. The likes of Uber Eats and Delivery love you then because you are enabling their their clients to better predict what they need to be a success on their platform. Essentially, yes. Yeah. So we we're we're still a small fish for for those brands, right? Like, um, but we're starting to make um, we're starting to get on their radar as well, and that our platform just makes it a lot of more efficient for the restaurants, for the end consumers, and for the delivery apps to do food delivery. Um, we're making the supply. We're we're creating a huge step change in in in, in the quality of the supply um, on the restaurant side. Now, if we rewind it back a minute. You said you were one of the co-founders. How many co-founders are there? Um, we started company together with Tom, uh, who is my co-founder. We met at London Business School, and I guess we're we've been friends ever since. And we kind of challenged this assumption that you shouldn't start a business with uh, with with your good friends. Um, We've been running the business for three years now. We're, we've been building it. Um, well, we took it from just two of us in Tom's living room to 15 people now and, 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 and scaling. So it's been going really well. Saying you're a, C, a, a, a co-founder, though, doesn't necessarily make you a CEO or a CFO or a CTO. What, what do you think you bring to the table operationally as the business is scaling? Yeah. So I, th- I think again, like early stage, like founders are usually just self-appointed CEOs. And like the reality is like created a job for yourself. So it wasn't really that hard to become the CEO of a business. Um, I think, I think what's more important than any title is, is the ability to, to scale as the business grows and, and develop your skills and, and, and go from the moment of like being extremely hands-on just doing everything yourself to the moment of like starting to manage people and then managing people who manage people um, and essentially just do the job and then fire yourself from that job and hire someone who can do that job better than you. Um, and that's, that's the kind of... <laughs> Maybe put yourself in a new department. Yeah, that's a nicer way of putting it. Um, 
Yeah. So that's, that's been the journey. So in the beginning, I did very, very hands on sales, like down to the point of like cold calling and emailing people and cycling around London, trying to meet restaurants. Um, and that kind of evolved to the point where I still do enterprise sales and I, I still heavily get involved in customer success. Um, especially with some of our biggest like, uh, operator partners or, um, or, or brand partners. Um, but I no longer, um, uh, do the hands-on sales. We, we've built a sales department, which we continue to continue to build. Um, same on product, right? Like in the beginning, I would, Tom and I would actually, we built the first, um, essentially piece of code and, and, um, logic behind our expansion tool and analytics tool that allows us to figure out which brands to bring to which postcodes and how to maximize demand for that specific brand in any given postcode. And that's still very much the foundation of the business. But now we have an engineering department, we have a product uh, department, and I still get involved in in, in, in the weekly things and um, still very much hands-on with the product roadmap. But there are so many things happening that I just can't um, can't see anymore. You talked there about the product roadmap. As a company of 15 people, it must be difficult to know what to build yourself versus what to buy off a shelf versus, you know, the role that technology plays obviously is a massive role, but understanding exactly how it how you grow alongside the technology that you have must be quite a tricky one to work out. And especially to know when you're in the, the field of data analytics and there are so many organizations out there that 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 could help you where to where to spend your money, the investor money wisely to ensure that it helps you scale. Yeah, I mean it's it's the uh it's probably a daily conversation with Sasha, our head of engineering, and what we're actually gonna build and what we who we're gonna partner with. Um the whole food sector is just incredibly fragmented when it comes down to like solutions and, and data. And um let's say the delivery apps uh they're the ones who interact with the consumers, but then pulling that data out of the delivery apps to then do the analytics and, and optimize the operations of the restaurants. Um, that piece hasn't really been solved by, by anyone. There are some early entrants in the space like, like Deliverect and, and, and similar players that we're, uh, we're looking to partner with. So we're not, we're not looking to replicate what people have built. We're looking to step on their shoulders and, and just build the next layers. Um, on top of that, to create a collection of essentially digitally very, very savvy uh, restaurant brands who, who who are ready to scale um, across the country and, and, and beyond. You thought there about those brands and, and ready to scale across the country and beyond. Um, yet here we are at a time when household budgets are under strain, kind of gas and electricity bills are soaring. Finances feel like they're stretched is it is it the time that people are looking to to buy food from takeouts? I I, I don't know. I, I'd throw back at you. What is what is going on in that marketplace right now, and how are restaurants adjusting to what we're seeing at a at a macro level, kind of from from an economic picture and and consumers' um, purses? There is this underlying trend from the end consumers that we just want food on demand and we want it to be an on-demand convenience, no matter what, right? Like if you think about the other aspects of your life, you take Ubers, you use class pass, you order your clothes and stitch fix. It's all on demand and, and, and tailored to your needs and, and, um, and what you want and what you like. Yet in a world like this, we're still left with 
chopping vegetables and, and uh, making our own mediocre curry at the end of the day. Um, we don't even know how it impacts our health or the environment or anything. And so it's, it's very ripe for disruption. People are asking for, for food to be delivered to them. Um, now with the cost of living crisis, what we've actually seen is, um, is quite a positive impact on, on us and our restaurant partners. So more and more people are choosing to stay at home and order food um, to their house instead of going out and, and dining out at a more expensive um, uh, place where they may have to pay for someone to look after their children while they go out. Um, so we actually have seen the demand continue to increase uh, for our products and for, for the product of our restaurants. Um, similarly on the restaurant side, like because they're becoming more and more cost conscious on their expansion, it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to build their own physical locations from scratch, which can cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and it's a huge amount of risk to take, um, uh, when, when you commit to a 10 year lease to, to get into a new location. Instead, Oftentimes, what they opt for is is our service, where we can just bring them to new postcodes, essentially within a matter of weeks, with virtually no capital expenditure on their end, because we're leveraging uh, kitchens that were built by uh, some of our partners. And what are the trends that you're seeing in in the food market? I mean, that's that's their perspective. They want to expand they they are keen to be brought to new postcodes but what what are you seeing you're obviously collecting a lot of data and analytics right now there's always trends that come and go so um you know for instance uh fried chickens were a big big thing a couple of years ago and we're still seeing huge demand for some of the brands um and you know there's always fads coming in and out like um um, influencer-led virtual brands that are being created left and right, and some of it is just noise, some of it sticks. Um, overall, the trends are we still continue to order mostly for dinner, um, a couple lunch orders, especially in central London. Um, as you can expect, earlier in the week, you get healthier orders later in the week. People go for, <laughs> for, for a cheap day easier. Um, so, so what you could extrapolate is that the weekend is still alive in 2023. Uh, 100%, yes. People love their <laughs> uh, cheap days on the weekends. Um, and actually, uh, you would never guess, well, maybe you would, uh, but every year the 1st of January is the highest um, selling day of the year. No, I, I I suppose that makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not a day that typically you wanna you wanna kind of cook. No, uh, you kind of want to just lay in your couch and get some greasy food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, you did mention about kind of you, you yourself being a, a celiac. Um, how important a component is that that kind of that that healthy food market and so on to to you as a business to try and kind of make um alternative and free from foods available to people because i suppose it's one thing kind of patty patty and bun fried chicken maybe some greasier foods at the weekend that's great that's kind of comfort food but you've got an opportunity i suppose to really make kind of healthy food and choice available to people where it might not have been previously available yeah i mean great question we I believe that the way you drive innovation and behavioral change within people is by creating a product that actually is better than the alternatives. And it just happens to be healthy or sustainable. 
So taking Tesla as an example, it's a better car than a combustion engine car and people buy it because of that. It just happens to be um, sustainable and electric. Um, so that's kind of like the journey we're on. So we, we partner with whatever brand happens to have a huge demand for their food. And then we work very, very closely with those brands to create um, healthier options, better labeled food and, you know, label it from a sustainable perspective sustainability perspective but also from a health perspective for the end consumers to be able to make that decision so we've partnered with a company called ecofi where we quantified the entire carbon footprint of our operations including down to the supply chain level of all our restaurant partners and what we're working on is labeling all of that food down to essentially just a b c d e um and and a food label on on sustainability and, and health um, I think that's probably the best way of approaching, like, uh, changing people instead of trying to force a salad onto someone, just like explaining the benefits of it, but leaving the decision, um, with them. Last question then, um, cause we're beginning to get short on time with you, but, um, you yourself have said that you've, you've always loved building companies, you know, first venture backed, um, business when you were, when you were in college. What would your advice be to a would-be entrepreneur, someone who might have an idea, they've got a, a, a problem that, that, that uh, they think they might have, a, might have a solution to? Where do you start building a company successfully? I think it doesn't matter. What matters is when you start. And that's basically like today. Just like get started with it and start doing it. And whatever idea you have, like the only thing you have to make sure is that Whatever your end goal is, which for us is to create a sustainable alternative that's much more convenient to grocery shopping. That's a problem that I truly am passionate about waking up every day to work on. Um, if I can make the food space just 10% more sustainable, we will have reduced our carbon footprint as humanity massively. Um, while driving our health, reducing the strain on, on the hospitals and, and, and all of those things. So that's a problem that I'm like deeply, deeply, deeply passionate about. And I've known that for a very, very long time. Um, so whatever problem comes along the way, I'm, I'm still, I still have this North Star and I'm still working towards that. As long as you have that in you and you kind of think you have a problem within that like huge piece of problem, you have like one specific problem that you can start solving um just get started with it um the reality is like whatever you think that problem is and whatever you th whatever you think your solution to it is is going to change probably a hundred times and the faster you can change that the better the better business you're going to build and the faster you're going to build a great business um so just have your north star and then don't think too much about it just get started great well look it's been it's been great to catch up with you um uh, some great advice there at the end as well and i hope that the business continues to to thrive and scale as the year goes on yeah thank you so much david uh it's great catching up